and welcome to another episode of Perfect Shadows and our first multi-part biography. We'll be staying in Asia for now, this time I in China in particular. As an aside, Imperial China was one of my concentrations in school. So incredibly chock full of crazy palace intrigues and constant stuff happening for well over 2,000 years, or 4,000 years if you include the ancient dynasties of Xia, Shang, and Zhou, that it's hard to ever really get bored of it. Hell, the guy we're going to talk about today lived centuries after household names like Confucius and Sun Tzu, and he's barely just starting what will become known as the modern state of China. That guy is Ying Zheng, sometimes written as Zhao Zheng, the powerful king of Qin and future first emperor of China, Qin Shi Huang. A note on sources. So the best source we have on the emperor is probably Sima Qian's Records of the Grand Historian. It covers about 2,500 years of history and was written during the Han Dynasty, over 100 years after the emperor's life. Started by his father Sima Tan, it was completed by Sima Qian, who you can think of as the Chinese version of Herodotus. This means that the text is not a contemporary source, almost certainly includes some biases in Han revisionism, as the Han overthrew the Qin, and, like Herodotus, may not be entirely 100% reliable. On the whole, though, the best we've got and, more often than not, proves to be pretty credible. The future first emperor was born Ying Zheng in 259 BCE to Prince Yai Ren of Qin and a former concubine known as Lady Zhao. There is some debate as to the true parentage of the child. Sima Qian gives two accounts. In the first, Prince Yai Ren was serving as a diplomatic hostage in the state of Zhao. You see this a lot throughout history, where upon signing a treaty between states, hostages, often of noble birth, are exchanged to ensure both states honor the treaty. The hostages are usually treated well, more like a semi-permanent visiting official than a prisoner. If you treated your hostage well, you could usually count on whoever you sent as a hostage being treated just as well. Anyway, Prince Yai Ren falls in love with the concubine of a rich businessman known as Lu Bu Wei. Lu gives his concubine to Prince Yai Ren, and they are married. The marriage produces a son, Ying Zheng. The other story is virtually the same except for one detail. When the concubine is married off, she's actually already pregnant with Lu Bu Wei's child. This account is particularly interesting because it paints the future emperor as an illegitimate child. Not only that, his true father would be a merchant, considered at the time by Confucian philosophy to be just about as low on the social ladder as you could go. You can see here what I mean about the biased sources. Most modern scholars believe this account to be altogether false, meant instead to throw dirt on the future emperor's lineage. So not much is known of his early childhood. His father, Prince Yai Ren, became King Zhuangxiang of Yin in 250 BCE with Lu Bu Wei's help and ruled until his death in 246 BCE. This leaves Ying Zheng now crowned king at only 13. Lu Bu Wei ruled as regent for nine years before being banished over a scandal. Scandal itself is actually pretty juicy. After the king's death, apparently Lady Zhao, now the queen dowager, and Lu Bu Wei continued their previous romantic relationship. Lu Bu Wei began to feel the heat coming down on him, so he essentially gives Lady Zhao a new lover named Lao Ai, disguising him as a eunuch. This new relationship results in two illegitimate kids. Bad enough by themselves, but Lao Ai decides to push his luck. First, he is made a marquee by the queen dowager. Then there begin to be whispers about him hoping to put one of his kids on the throne. When these rumors are investigated, Lao Ai doubles down, steals the queen dowager's personal seal, and launches a coup. This haphazard attempt is quickly put down. For his efforts, the queen dowager was placed on house arrest, Lao Ai was tied to five horses and dismembered, and his family was executed to the third degree, including the two illegitimate kids, all on the orders of King Zheng. For those who don't know what this execution entails, it was traditionally reserved for traitors to the state, and we'll see it come up again here and there. As I understand it, the first degree included parents, siblings, and children. Second degree were aunts, uncles, nephews, nieces, and grandchildren. Third degree were great-grandparents and great-grandchildren. So if you're planning some treason, you better be damn sure you're going to pull it off or be willing to have essentially your entire family lineage wiped off the face of the earth. 
Lu Bu Wei also ended up committing suicide with poisoned wine. This is the first time we catch a glimpse of a recurring theme throughout our story. You do not mess with the future emperor. As if this wasn't bad enough, his half-brother also rebelled and had to be executed by Qin forces. And you thought your family was toxic. <laughs> Following this familial fiasco, the state of Qin is in near constant warfare with its neighbors. John Mann writes, quote, Qin, the most westerly of the seven contending states, was considered by the others almost as barbaric as the nomad tribes who lived in the north and west. As a prince of neighboring Wei put it to his king over a century later, Qin has the same customs as the Rong and Di. These were barbarian tribes. It has the heart of a tiger or wolf. It is avaricious, perverse, eager for profit, and without sincerity. It knows nothing about etiquette, proper relationships, and virtuous conduct. End quote. It is about this time that we get probably the most famous of stories involving the future emperor. It's been told time and again in books, television shows, and movies. If you've ever seen Chen Kiek's 1998 film The Emperor and the Assassin starring Gong Li, or the highly stylicized 2002 Yang Mo film Hero with its superstar cast of Jet Li, Tony Leung, Maggie Chung, and Donnie Yen, you'll immediately recognize what I'm talking about. Fun fact before we begin, Jing Ke, who I'll introduce in a minute, is played by Jiang Fengyi in The Emperor and the Assassin. He would actually go on to play Qin Shi Huang in a television show a few years later. For those interested, The Emperor and the Assassin also contains Lao Ai's failed coup. Even if the timeline and some of the details are a bit off, it's still a great film and I recommend you see it if you get the chance. I'm also including pictures of both portrayals of King Jung in our Instagram this week, so make sure to check them out. We're going to get heavy with the sources now, so expect a lot of quoted passages, particularly from Jonathan Clement's book, the First Emperor of China, as it opens with this whole tale and its pretty engaging writing. Alright, enough intro. Let's get into the story of the first major assassination attempt on King Zheng. So as we mentioned earlier, the state of Qin was aggressively expanding its borders. This should come as no surprise to civilization players. Crown Prince Dan of Yan, also known as the Red Prince, saw the writing on the wall and knew he had to act fast to prevent his state from being swallowed up by the Qin military machine. Not only would the Qin certainly overrun Yan, the Red Prince knew he'd be personally executed. Remember those hostage situations we talked about at the beginning of the episode? Well, it turns out the Red Prince was formerly a hostage of Qin, even as far as a friend of King Zheng, before he escaped to try and save his homeland. As the Qin armies beat down Yan's neighbor Zhao, the Red Prince hatched a plot to buy his state some time, assassinate King Zheng of Qin. He hoped that by cutting the head off the snake, the other six nations would be able to put aside their differences, unify, and finally beat back the Qin invasions. So he set about to find his assassin, which wasn't exactly an easy task. I mean, you're looking for a guy who's brave enough to move past the largest armies in the land to try and kill the most powerful king in his own palace, and knowing full well that the chances of escaping alive are next to nil. It takes a certain type of person to undertake such a mission, and that person wound up being Jing Kai, a drunkard and supposed expert swordsman who came to the notice of an advisor when he started a fight over a chess match, then ran away before the swords could be unsheathed. Apparently, rather than a display of cowardice, the advisor considered this to show how level-headed Jing Ke was under pressure. Not exactly the same conclusion I would have drawn, and I'm pretty sure the Red Prince would have agreed with me had Jing Ke not received a hell of an endorsement. Quote, he seemed like an unlikely candidate to save a nation, but he came on the highest recommendation. In order to preserve the utmost levels of secrecy, the Red Prince's chief advisor took his own life after suggesting Jing Ke, both to conceal the plot and convince Jing Ke of its importance. End quote. So obviously Jing Ke gets picked thanks to his advisor's, shall we say, insistence, because it's pretty hard to argue with the guy who's willing to kill himself to prove a point. So now that the Red Prince has his Ethan Hunt ready for Mission Impossible, he began to make preparations. During this time, Jing Ke set about rigorously training night and day to ensure he'd be in top physical form. <laughs> Just kidding. 
he decided to extend his stay so he could party and get shit-faced for as long as possible. Quote, Faced with the prospect of making a one-way trip, Jing Ke took his time. A voluntarily condemned man, he undertook lavish last meals, indulged in luxuries fit for a king, and dallied with a succession of slave girls supplied for his pleasure. Later legends, considered too frivolous for inclusion in the record of the historian, have Jing Ke skimming golden coins across a pond, feasting on the liver of a priceless horse, and even maiming a pretty musician so that her hands might be presented to him on a jade platter. End quote. While those last few examples are probably all false, how much of an asshole do you have to be for people to say you'd like to have hands cut off and brought to you on a platter? So anyway, while Jing Ke's exercise in hedonism is going on, the Red Prince is hard at work planning and gathering the necessary equipment, things like the sharpest dagger in the land. Not content with just having a simple dagger, the Red Prince decided to dabble in some poison. Quote, the Red Prince also experimented with poison. Its speed of action was not really the issue. More important for a diligent assassin was a required effective dosage. The king might be armored, he might be struggling. When the assassin struck, he might only have the opportunity to make the slightest of cuts in his quarry's skin. The Red Prince's experiments cost many lives. Slaves struck with poisoned blades until the assassin was convinced he had found the concoction that could deliver death from the smallest cut. End quote. I mean, I suppose you could argue that you can't really know if something will work without some beta testing, but damn, couldn't I have tried your poison on some rats or something instead of multiple human slaves? Practice makes perfect, I guess, and the Red Prince finally settled on the appropriate equipment so the mission could begin. Except still, Jing Ke wouldn't leave. Sensing the Red Prince was getting a bit pissed off at this moocher, Jing Ke brought up the fact that King Zheng wouldn't just grant an audience to any random person, much less allow him to get close enough to do the deed. It's at this point that a lantern goes off in Jing Ke's head, and he comes up with an idea, which brings us to General Fan Yuqi. General Fan Yuqi was a former commander of the Qin military. I say former because he defected from Qin and ran away to the state of Yang. King Zheng, of course, did not take this betrayal lightly. A large bounty was placed on his head, along with the promise of being ennobled. Jing Ke figured the general's head would be a perfect way to get in close to King Zheng. The Red Prince, however, refused to kill the general. So Jing Ke decided to pay a visit to Fan Yuqi and, quote, told him that he had heard of the massive reward on the general's head and asked him what he planned on doing with his life. The general had no answer. His family was dead, and no career with the military of his former enemy awaited him. The men of Yan would never follow him in battle. He told Jing Ke the truth, that he could do nothing but sit in exile and dream of revenge. In one of history's strangest business proposals, Jing Ke offered a deal. He asked for Fan Yuqi's head. In return, he promised to avenge him by taking his head to the king of Qin to claim the reward. When the grateful king admitted Jing Ke into his presence, Jing Ke planned to grab him by the sleeves and pull him close, stabbing him with a poison knife. Day and night, replied Fan Yuqi, I gnash my teeth and eat out my heart trying to think of some plan. Now you have shown me the way. The record of the historian implies that Fan Yuqi acted immediately. He cut his own throat. End quote. King Zheng was definitely a love him or hate him figure, even in his own time. I'm pretty sure the majority skewed more toward hating him. Sima Chan says the Red Prince broke down and wept upon seeing the general's body. Jonathan Clements wonders if the sorrow was due to relief that his plan could go forward, or perhaps realizing that he was becoming just as cold-blooded and calculating as his hated enemy. Jing Ke's final request for was a traveling companion so as to not arouse suspicion. Qin Wu Yang, a local hardened criminal with a reputation for ferocious violence, was chosen to accompany him. The general's head was packaged, and Jing Ke was given a map of Yan. The idea was to pose as an emissary of Yan with an offer for King Zheng, using the map as a visual of which territories they were willing to surrender to Qin. 
to prevent the dagger from being found on them during the inevitable search, it was hidden in the rolled up map. And so off they set on their literal mission of life or death. Quote, it was a history-making expedition. If it worked, Chin would be plunged into chaos and its neighbors could shake themselves free. They might continue to fight among themselves, but it would at least end the tyranny of Chin. The Red Prince would live on. So many brave men had died already to make the mission possible. The advisor who committed suicide to preserve the secret, the unwitting slaves who had tested the poison, and the noble general Fan Yuqi, who had provided Jing Ke with his vital bait. Chronicles are silent about the many others who may not have made it into the history books. It is unlikely indeed that any of the servants or concubines in Jing Ke's mansion were permitted to live past the day he left. End quote. It's a lot of death and destruction for a chance to maybe kill one guy. But if you're the Red Prince, this is probably your best shot at getting out of this war alive. So they arrived at the capital of Qin, Xianyang, after a long journey of hundreds of miles. They approached a courtier and purposely let slip that they were on a secret mission from Yan to seek an alliance with Qin. They used the head of General Fan Yuqi as proof of the Red Prince's resolve. Rather than merely have the general kicked out of Yan to calm King Zheng's anger, the Red Prince had the general outright killed and brought to the mighty king. Or so they claimed. The minister was convinced and told the king of the proposal. The king was elated to hear this opportunity of conquering another territory without having to start a war, so he agreed to grant an audience to the envoys. As Jin Ke and Qin Wuyang made their way up to the palace, they would have been struck with its architecture. Quote, Although the advisors of the king despised the traditions of Confucius, there were still many policies that they readily adopted. One was the political application of Feng Shui, an acknowledgement that the character of a state could be conveyed through architecture. Government buildings were designed to instill respect in visitors and also fear. To reach the king, a visitor had to climb the steps before the imposing palace of Xianyang, a building deliberately constructed to convey its owner's supremacy. From a distance, the palace looked drab and utilitarian. Up close, visitors would see the muted military walls were etched with images of coiling dragons. The gray floor was tiled with patterns of swirling curlicues around symbolic sun disks. When in the presence of the king of Qin, visitors walked upon the image of the sun itself. End quote. The impression must have been too much for Chen Wuyang, who began to go pale and start trembling. King Zheng looked over at the pair suspiciously and not without some visible impatience. Jing Ke deftly intervened and laughed it off, telling the king that Chen Wuyang was a country bumpkin, obviously unaccustomed to these lavish surroundings and struck dumb by the sight of such a powerful ruler. Taking the map from his partner, Jing Ke jogged up the stairs and set the map before the king. He slowly unfurled the map with the new fake borders inch by inch, until the dagger was finally displayed. Quote, Jing Ke grabbed the king, snatching at the end of his long sleeve with his left hand. With his right, he grabbed the knife, plunging it towards the king's chest. The king had time to react, springing backwards, his sleeve tearing off in Jing Ke's hand, the knife missing him. He leapt to his feet, struggling to tug his unwieldy ceremonial sword from its scabbard. It was too long to be easily drawn from its sheath, and the king had to scurry away from Jing Ke. He darted behind a pillar while his assembled attendants watched in paralyzed fascination. None of them dared step on the dais to intercede. The king had forbidden anyone to approach him without his command, and even though he was threatened by a man with a knife, his subjects remained strictly, doggedly obedient to his wishes. The king's doctor hurled his medicine bag at Jing Ke, distracting him for a crucial moment, while other courtiers yelled for the guards to come. Someone shouted at the king to put his sword behind his back, turning his belt so that the scabbard trailed behind him. The king swiftly did so, emerging from behind the pillar with the sword drawn. Even as Jing Ke found the tables turned, the sword cut into his thigh. The king struck his assailant a further seven times, leaving him slumped bloody against another pillar. End quote. The king remained motionless for a time, with the adrenaline undoubtedly pumping throughout his body. 
Once calmed, he rebuked his courtiers for not helping and thanked the doctor for his help. King Zheng now had the botched assassination attempt as a perfect reason to attack Yang, which he did so at once. The Red Prince's father decided to take up arms to defend his son, or so you would think that's what a father would do. Instead, he ordered his guards to find the Red Prince and bring him his head in the hopes that it would be enough to calm the King of Qin. The Red Prince, realizing he had lost his only chance at surviving the war, slit his own throat. It took another five years before Yan would fall to the might of the Qin armies. This was not the only assassination attempt on King Zheng's life. The second attempt was actually a revenge mission by a friend of Jing Ke, a famous lute player named Gao Jianli. While King Zheng was busy killing off Jing Ke's friends, Gao Jianli changed his name and worked in a wine shop, where he would entertain the owner with his lute playing. King Zheng heard of this and summoned him to the palace to perform, unaware of his connections to Jing Ke. A courtier recognized Gao Jianli and raised the alarm. King Zheng believed it would be a shame to execute such a talented musician, so he took his eyes out instead. Still, Gao Jianli was allowed to continue playing. After numerous performances, he was able to perform closer and closer. Gao Jianli began to add pieces of lead to the inside of his lute. You can probably imagine where this is going. Once he was allowed closer, Gao swung his lute in an attempt to beat King Zheng to death. Of course, being blind, he completely missed his mark, was restrained by guards, and summarily executed. King Zheng became even more withdrawn from this point on, particularly with those who were not from Qin. So one by one, the nations of Han, Zhao, Wei, Yan, Chu, and Qi fell to the Qin. While the Warring States period had gone on for hundreds of years, it took King Zheng just under 10 years to conquer and unify all six states, something which had never been accomplished before. Quote, as the record of the historian bluntly puts it, Qin conquered the world. In recognition of his incredible achievement, the king of Qin devised a new term for himself. He combined two earlier terms for a supreme being to make a new title, emperor. He decreed that he was the first emperor of Qin, a role that would endure for 10,000 generations. The world was of course bigger than the record of the historian suspected. Even as the first emperor proclaimed himself to be the master of it, there were entire societies who had never heard of him. In distant Greece, in distant Greece, the Achaean League and the King of Macedonia were arguing over treaty terms, and the Roman Republic was fielding armies against its sworn enemy of Carthage, uncaring and unknowing of the first emperor's exploits. But as far as he was concerned, beyond the deserts and steppes to the west, there was unlikely to be any civilization, merely more barbarians waiting for enlightenment. One day, they would hear of Qin and call it China." End quote. As always, Spotify, or wherever it is you're listening from. This week, I've included some photos of different actors portraying King Zheng, including from The Emperor and the Assassin, Hero, and a third portrayal from a Smithsonian Channel documentary. You can see these on our Instagram, at Perfect Shadows Podcast. We're excited can be found on the website at www.perfectshadowspodcast.com. If you have any comments or ideas, please shoot me an email perfectshadowspodcast at gmail.com. Next week, we'll continue with King Zheng, now known as Qin Shi Huang, as we cover his 11-year reign and death, including his massive burial tomb containing flowing rivers of mercury and the famous terracotta army. See you next week. Mm -hmm.